I said in the first service, uh, you may have had a sugar rush last night, but you've showed up and you're going to get spinach today because Romans chapter 11 is deep, deep water. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to leave there in the New Testament, Romans chapter 11. And as you're uh, turning there, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Brian Fannin. I have the great privilege of serving as a small groups pastor here at Grace Fellowship. And I also have the privilege of transitioning us out of Romans chapter 10 into Romans chapter 11. And we are working our way through this great book. Now, if you know anything about it, if you know anything about this particular book, this is a book that has the marvelous theme, the central theme to the New Testament, the gospel of God. And you're not going to understand the nature of the gospel. You're not going to understand the intricate workings of the gospel apart from Romans. In fact, it's central to New Testament thought. And as I said in the email, it's a whole lot like trying to understand a hot fudge Sunday apart from the hot fudge. You're not going to get it. You won't get the gospel apart from Romans. So it's a big deal. And Christians today... By and large, we like to go to places that we're very familiar with, straight shooting passages. So passages like Romans 1 and Romans 3 tell us a little bit about where we stand. And Romans chapter 8 shows the new direction that we have, that there's no condemnation, that we've been justified, we've been made right through faith in Christ. And Romans chapter 8 ends with, The promise that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Nothing. I don't know about you, but I like the idea of God can say, no way, no how is anything going to separate you from my love. Gives me great confidence, gives me hope. But when we come to chapter 11, it's a whole other ball of wax, if you will. A whole other game. Romans 11 is the deep end of the theological pool. Make no mistake about it. When you read it, there is a way that Paul makes an argument here that you may not be familiar with. And so today, as we approach this passage, I'm going to introduce that to you. But I'm also going to uh, approach this with you with, with a, a, a deal of humility and fear. Because this is God's word, and this is a big deal. And you may read it, and it, makes, it may not make a lot of sense to you. And so it's important that we're careful with the text. So we're going to need God's guidance on that today. I'm going to ask you to join me. Let's pray about that right now. Father, I've, I've already said what my prayer is. Is that you hear speaking through me by your grace. And to hearts that need to hear a message of hope. A message in the mix of a very complex passage, Lord, that you give us hope. So I want to ask, Lord, today, please, give us ears to hear. Give us clear, give me clear thought. Lord, help us to respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So as we come to chapter 11, I'd like you to look at the text there. I'm going to read a few verses. We're going to skip around, but we're going to basically cover the bulk of this particular chapter today. We're going to dissect it. So Romans 11, it begins with a question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer is by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin... God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So look down, we're going to skip this next section where he is referring back to the Old Testament indictment. We come down to verse 11. There's another question. Question. He said, so I asked, do they stumble in order that they might fall? Meaning this. So everybody look here just for a second. He's asking this question. Did the Israelites' failure to accept Christ mean that they're gone forever? They're done. Did their failure to embrace the Messiah as he was given, mean that they are, God's done with them. Look at what he says. He says, by no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So this next section, he goes on, to explain a little bit about being grafted in, about how God has taken non-Jewish people and grafted them into his plan. And then in verse 25, he tells the reason why he explains all this. This is an important verse. There's actually two verses, verse 25 and 32, which serve as bookends. So track with me. The next thing he says is this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And then in verse 32, look at that. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Now, if you read the passage or you read the passage later today, I want you to know when I say spinach, it's good for you, but it may be a little toothy, all right? Which means that in the mouth, it may go, what in the world does this mean? This is one of those places that believers go or unbelievers go and say, who can understand all this thought? These layers of questioning, these these thoughts, these things, these run-on sentences. Well, I want you to know in a day of Twitter, our world, a world of minimization, yeah, this is confusing, confounding. But for the Roman and for the Greek of Paul's day, this was no sweat. They understood exactly what he was talking about. So I want to give you a quick review of Romans 9 and 10. 
And it may be in your bulletin, but let's look first at 1021, right before chapter 11. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I held out my hands to a bit disobedient and contrary people. That's God's talking. All day long, God reached, reached, reached. And they just continued their disobedience. See, God chose in 9 and 10, Paul lays out those who are going to come to faith in Christ. And you and I are responsible for our rejection of him and his gospel. So the Jews likewise are responsible for the refusal to turn to Christ. And they've not come to faith because God has not chosen to have mercy on them. What then becomes of God's promise to his people? The great majority of Israel's rejected our Messiah and standing a curse and cut off. And what does this all mean? And for those of you who sit here today, just concerned about the relationships you have, just concerned about how you're going to pay your mortgage, you may go, who cares? What does it matter? I need to know what God has to say to me. Well, God has much to say to you. And Romans chapter 11 is one of those places that when you mine it and when you see this as great nutrition for understanding what God is really like and what really is called into account in this passage, what really called into account is what is God really like and is he faithful to what he's promised, then yeah, this is a big deal. Tim Keller says, As you come to Romans 11, you've got to understand that it's one of the most difficult in all of Scripture to understand. Scholars estimate today that there's some 3,300 questions in the Bible. Think about that. 3,300 questions. And Romans 11 is one of those chapters that has layers of questions, and it begins with a question. And that question is, has God rejected his people? Has he done it? And this technique is called diatribe. Diatribe was a Greek um, philosophy of rhetorical questions that were used by professors, by teachers, to pose an imaginary character in the room. And this imaginary character was asking a question, and the professor was responding with definitive, authoritative answers. And question upon question is laid out, and this dialogue is occurring. And so that question comes, what about Israel? And so I guess that none of you this morning was talking about that over the breakfast table. He didn't ask the question. But as I said, at its core is the question of God and his faithfulness, in fact, his very character. And to understand that, you have to go back to the roots. And if you are a Christian, you need to understand the roots. You need to understand the whole counsel of God's word, not just the New Testament. And the whole counsel of God's word takes us back to what Paul's talking about, about Israel, about Abraham. And who is this guy? So if you're new to Christianity, you're new to church, this is a great day to show up. We're going to show you that the thread of truth that it's always been there is that the foundations have not changed. The foundations are this, that you and I in responding to God are going to respond in faith or you're going to respond in thinking that you're doing 
what you do or what you don't do is going to get you into heaven. But that's never been the case. So this is what we're going to do. If I take it, you know, you've got a whole chapter here. If we go up 35,000 feet and we fly over it, you're going to see nothing. But if we descend to 2,000 feet, and although we're going to be moving fast, you're going to get some details that you need to understand. And my objective today in your outline is this. Two things, two key things. Number one is you're going to gain some biblical knowledge, surface truth that you can understand God's word better. But number two, you're going to gain some application to your own life. So here we go. There's a question right up front. Cannot be moved out of its context and how Paul answers it. You cannot move it out and, and miss what he's trying to say. Is God done with Israel? Is God done with these people that he started with? And he says, no. Right up, no, God is not done. Truth number one, God has not rejected Israel. But to apply this, you've got to understand the roots is about trust. What they place their faith and trust in. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. So you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 12 because Paul refers to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 is where it all began. This covenant relationship that started with a person. Now, Christian, if you sit in this room today and you've been a Christian a long time and you don't understand what God asked of Abraham, I would argue I'm persuaded that you don't really necessarily understand what God called you to. God did not call you to an intellectual belief in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he existed. He lived 2,000 years ago. And the Romans put him on a cross. And I believe he resurrected from the dead. And some of us, that's the extent of faith. It's an ascent to an intellectual argument. But that's never what was in the scripture. In the scripture is a different paradigm. The paradigm is this, God calls to a man by the name of Abram. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, later named Abraham, God renames him. Now, pause, look here just for a second. First time this guy's name's on the scene. Abraham's not walking around with the Bible. God speaks to him in a way that he can understand. Abraham hears him, and this is what... God says to him, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I'll make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what is he asking him to do? He tells him, he says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your kin and your friends. I don't want you to leave your father's house. Now, when God looks at you, just like he looked at Abraham, and he calls you to a new life, you need to understand that the Bible is never divorced from real life. 
God says to him, Abraham, leave your security, which was his country. Can you imagine? God says, I got a place for you to go. I got a place for you. It's someplace else. So leave the country that you know. Leave your kin and your friends. What's that? Leave your community. Leave the community that you know. And leave your father's house. Leave your identity. One of the things that my daughter has taught me about architecture school is they immerse these young people into a place where they have, are forced to work together and they build community. And Emily's told me, it doesn't take very long, about six months in, you realize this is all I know. I know these people, I know this work, and it quickly became, she says it pulls that it becomes your identity. Abraham, his identity was rooted in what he knew. And God says, leave your father's house. Some of you may sit in this room, you don't even know your dad. You've never known what it's like to live in a covenant relationship with someone who adored you and blessed you. You don't know what it's like to find your identity in a loving, faithful father. But Abraham was called by a God that says, I want you to leave what you've known and come follow me and I'm going to make you new. That is the call on your life as a believer. Make no mistake about it. God makes a claim on your whole life to turn from what you've known and embrace brand new. And he promises, look, he does not promises that you're just going to get by. He promises you something so much better. He says, I will make your name. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those that curse you. And so when Paul and the chapter, in chapter 11 refers back to Abraham, Paul is referring to the roots of faith. The Bible says it. Abraham believed God and he followed him. But it didn't take long before the Israelites had all their eggs in one prophetic basket. They knew that one was coming, this Messiah traced out of Moses and the Ten Commandments through David, that they were a unique people, that they were called of God, but they were oppressed. They found their way to rebellion. God brought repentance in their life. They turned back. They rebelled again. God brought discipline. They repented. They'd come again, and they found themselves continually with oppressors. And they'd put all their eggs in one basket. And that is that God was going to send this Messiah who was a deliverer. He was a deliverer and was going to overthrow the oppressors. That he was going to free them and give them the land, give them brand new and they would not be suffering. All the while blind that the greatest oppressor that all of us have is ourself. 
that our focus, our self-focus gets us in trouble. Their confidence was in this. We're God's people. We're children of Abraham. We received the law. We're different. We have a place. But then they found their way quickly to the law, to the do's and the don'ts that please God. They thought, if I just keep doing the stuff, God's happy. And some of you, without even knowing it, that's what you've done. You believe that God is happy by what you do or don't do. And you never recognize the applicable truth is from the beginning, from Abraham, from the context of this passage, that it it was never about Abraham's do. It was about Abraham's faith and trust in a perfect sovereign God. He trusted God and he followed him. Do you? What's your confidence in? Is your confidence in your heritage? Is your confidence in what you've done? Is your confidence in your success triangle, whatever it may be? Your relationships, your business? Where do you place your faith and trust? Christians, we need to understand that New Testament gospel faith is focused on a person and on his substitution for and savior for your sin. That's what faith is all about. What he accomplished is the core. It's about putting your life on the line just like Abraham did. When Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. He says, I do not live confident in the flesh. He's talking about his heritage. He's not talking about this body. He's talking about his roots. He said he's abandoned, he's turned away from that and he's placed his faith and trust in a person, in a glorious Savior who saves not from the oppressors from without, but the bondage that's from within. He refers back to, in Romans 4, 3, you'll see it. He, wrote, he refers back to Genesis fifteen six, And he says, the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We somehow have concluded it can't be that easy. It was not that easy for Jesus. Because he bore your sin. And your response in faith is this. I am putting my life on the line, my new identity, my new purpose, my new direction is Christ alone. The reason why the Israelites were not right was because they refused to believe. And it's a startling statement. Look in verse 7 and 8 as we look at this passage. He says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It obtained 
it failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? It was seeking a righteousness by do. A righteousness by do this, observe this, keep these things, and you're good with God. God just kind of winks at the rest. But do these things and you're right with God. And Paul, this would have been shocking to the hearer, the original hearer. A righteousness of appeasing God was what they did. And look at what happens to them. It says they were hardened. They became blind. God gave it to them. Now, there is a mixture of the unbelievable freedom that we have created in the image of God. And the amazing mystery of this black box of God's providential control. But make no mistake, folks. They're both present. They're both here in this text. That as you choose to not believe, your heart grows hard and you become blind. And at the same time, the Israelites' eyes were darkened by God. We cannot escape this dynamic tension that our freedom to act has consequences and God's sovereign work is at work in the smallest details of life. Truth number two, God has not abandoned his plan for Israel. Christianity, folks, is not plan B. It's not plan B. And if you are interpreting scripture that way, I am persuaded that you're way off base. And right with this comes this application that really do fold together. It is this, that we are people who interpret life in the context of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so we look at the circumstances and we say, well, they've rejected, so God must have just moved on to a different plan. Don't allow your circumstances to cloud your view of God and what he's doing in his salvation story. What's going on right now in your life is not the whole story. I love how Piper said, God is doing at this very moment and at any given moment in your life, 10,000 things in and around in your life. And you might be aware of three of them. We're clueless, but we strut around like we know it all. And we jump to conclusions. And we, we, we get dogmatic in interpretation. You've got to be careful. I'm going to urge you and warn you, don't do that. I'm reminded of a Portuguese legend of an old man. This old man, he lived in a tiny village. And this man was envied by all because he owned this beautiful horse. Even the king coveted this uh, treasure of a horse. A horse like this had never been seen before. Its splendor, its beauty, its majesty, its strength. And people from all over the country came to see the horse and offered unbelievable prices to purchase the horse. And the old man just refused. He said, I can't sell that horse. 
That horse is a friend. He's not a possession. How can you sell a friend? The man was poor and the temptation was great. But he never sold the horse. One morning he found that the horse was not in the stable. And all the village came out. You old fool, they said. We told you that someone would steal your horse. And sure enough, it's happened. You're poor. You couldn't protect the horse. And here you find yourself poorer than ever. No amount of money would have been too high. People would have paid you for it. They offered it for you. You should have sold it. Now the horse is gone. You're cursed. What are you going to do? Well, the old man said, don't, don't, don't speak too quickly. Say that only the horse is not in the stable. This is all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How can you judge? Well, the people contested, don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but we can see the handwriting on the wall. You've been cursed. Whether it's a cursing or a bless, the old man said, I can't say. All we have right now is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? Fifteen days later, the horse returned. The horse had not been stolen. He had gone off into the forest, and he returned with him a dozen other horses. <coughs> Old man, the villagers said, you were right, we were wrong. We thought we had, what was a curse was actually a blessing. Please forgive us. Maybe they wanted to buy one of the horses. The old man responded once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back and he brought other horses. How do you know if it's a blessing or a curse? You only see a fragment. How can you know the whole story? How can you judge? You only read one page of a book. Can you judge the whole book? Can you judge one word of a phrase? Can you judge the phrase by one word? Life is vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say that it's a blessing. No one knows. I'm content, he said, with what I don't know. And I try not to be perturbed by what I don't. Maybe the old man is right, they said to one another. So they said little, but they knew. This was a blessing. And with a little bit of work, those horses could be broke and sold. Well, the old man had a son, an only son. And the young man began to break the horses. And after a few days, the young man fell from one of the horses. And he broke both legs. Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man, and they began to cast their judgment. You were right. You were right. You proved you were right. Those dozen horses were not a blessing. Now you're poorer than ever. What are you going to do? The old man said, you people are obsessed with judging. Don't judge this on the surface. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments. Life comes in fragments. It so happened that a few weeks later that the country engaged in a war with a neighboring country. All the young men of the village were required to join the army and only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man and they were crying and screaming because they had seen their sons go. 
There was little chance that they would return. The enemy was strong and the war would be a losing battle. They'd never see their sons again. You were right, old man, they wept. God knows you were right. This proves it. That was no accident that had to your son, what happened to your son. His legs may be broken, but at least you have him. Our sons are gone forever. The old man said again, it's impossible to talk to you. You only draw conclusions. No one knows. Your son on your sons had to go to war and mine did not say only that. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. And you and I, I'm a master at this. And my guess is you've got polished skill with this as well. When things go awry and heartbreak is knocking at your door, you jump to conclusions. You know what would fix it. You don't interpret it that God is at work. In fact, what we do in the church is this. We look at Israel and we say things like this. We say, well, Israel just becomes the church. Well, the problem with that is the Bible. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, Paul in this text points to his bloodline. He says here in verse 1, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin from Abraham. I'm from the stock. But Abraham was defiant. The application here is this, that in spite of a defiant person, in spite of a person that wants to go to war with God, and Paul did, God called him out. And some of you may be heartbroken today. In fact, you are sitting here this morning without your mate that you love dearly. And you are praying and you're crying out. And you're wondering, God, why don't you save them? And you call into question the very character of God. Well, Paul says, God got a hold of me. Paul was a persecutor. He was defiant and despondent. And God opened his eyes and brought him to faith in Christ. And Paul points to a second Israelite. He, call, he, he calls attention to this guy by the name of Elijah. And you may not know this story, but it's an important story. And you can go read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. But I'm going to give you just the highlight. We're going to zoom across the top of it. This is what happens with Elijah. Elijah was this guy that was the alone prophet, seemingly. And basically controlling the land in Israel was the, was the prophets of Baal and all the people of just basically an outright rebellion to God. So Elijah says, I got an idea. Let's have a contest. And the contest will go like this. We're going to build an altar. And we're going to see who consumes the altar with fire. See, that would make sense because... 
for the, for the prophets of Baal or for the followers of Baal. He was a God of fertility. He was a God of thunder. Surely to goodness, he can take care of a little lightning strike, right? So they started dancing and they started singing and they started crying out to Baal. Elijah went over and parked himself on a rock. It didn't take him very long, but Elijah started poking fun, said, hey, you're going to have to, he may be a little hard of hearing. Scream a little louder. And then he says something like this. It's there. Go look. He says, maybe he's in the bathroom. You need to rouse him. And after a while, Elijah had had enough of it. And he says, out of the way, they doused the altar with water till it was running across it. And Elijah looked to heaven and he said, Lord, show them who's the real God. And fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and all the water. Amazing faith. But that's not why Paul pointed to him. He pointed to him because it wasn't but a moment later that Elijah is depressed and camped out in a cave. His circumstances had dictated. He says to God, I'm the only one left. And Christian, today, you may sit in this room and you look at what's gone on in our culture. You may look with confidence at candidates of who you vote for and who's in the White House or who's in the governor's mansion or who's sitting on Capitol Hill. And because the circumstances do not align with what you think it should be, you're tempted to sit down and go, is there anybody left that cares? And this is what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about jumping to conclusion that when suffering comes, that God's done. But God's response to Elijah in Romans eleven four is the same to you and me. You don't see it all. In the midst of suffering and unexplainable circumstances, you don't see it all. God says, I'm working it out. I'm working it out. I'm working it out. God always always has a remnant. And some of you who sit in this room today who've never trusted Christ, today may be that day that you become part of that remnant. That minority, if you will. So truth number three, I want you to see this. We must respond to God's work with humility and trust in his mysterious but good sovereignty. And the application that comes with this very directly to Christians is grace and mercy is what got you into the family of God. Don't ever forget it. Grace and mercy, grace and mercy, grace and mercy. Never, ever, ever should you view at any, look at any unbeliever, especially the Israelites, and think we're smart, they're dumb. That's pride. And it's one of the things the book of Proverbs teach that God hates. It's pride. Be careful. Pride blinds. And in verse 11, 32, chapter 11, verse 32, 
Paul says, lest you be wise in your own eyes. He does not want you to be aware, unaware of the mystery. Jewish people have been blamed for everything through history. Everything from the death of Jesus to the 9-11 attacks to poverty in America and racism and ethnic cleansing and prejudice are not something confined to the years past. And no amount of legislation changes the hearts of people. But believers sitting in this room today within earshot of my voice, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you to embrace biblical truth. Israel is precious in the sight of God as they are descendants of Abraham who put his life on the line and God made the covenant with him. And if God breaks that covenant, how can you and I depend on Romans 8, 31 to 39 of being right? That nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. Paul wants believers to understand God is at work right now, opening eyes, bringing people to faith in Christ. Jews and non-Jews. There's a section in here about grafting in, about us being grafted into the family of God. We don't have time to dissect all that. And while we're flying over, we might as well look at this prophetic verse, which is in verse 25, very quickly. There is prophecy. We like prophecy. Or at least we like to speculate about prophecy. Paul says, lest you be wise, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles have come in. And then he says, Israel is going to be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, as Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah, it has opened the door for non-Jews to understand and see clearly that the hope for heaven, the hope for being right with God, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you embrace that as Christ, the substitute for and the Savior from your sin, you stand justified and right. And you should never come to that place where you think, man, I just figured that out. What's happened is the darkness was lifted from your eyes. And you saw it, you saw the need, the suffering may have brought you there. But the Jews are precious in his sight. The blaming of them, Jesus on the cross. Let me tell you something. John 10, 18, Jesus said he could lay his life down and take it up again. He hung on the cross for one ultimate reason. His father in that moment chose for him to be there to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. And to give him the name above every name. But this fullness of Gentiles, there's no alarm clock set that you and I can hear. There's there's no time frame designated. It just says when it's full. 
there's coming a time. And even today, those in this room who've never trusted Christ, you can know this. If you trust Jesus today, that time is shortening. And the Jews' eyes are going to be open and they're going to come to faith in Christ. Maybe hard to understand, but I'm going to illustrate it. I mean, I lived in New Orleans years ago and we had a chance to eat in some fine restaurants and um, you can get a great meal in New Orleans for a shoestring. Some place is going to cost you a little bit more like a leg. But just imagine with me, we had a chance to eat at Emerald's restaurant. And if you ever go there, you should plan. And I'm talking months in advance. Call, get a reservation. It's worth it. I've often pictured like the marriage supper of the land. You think food's not going to be an issue in heaven. There's going to be food in heaven, folks. But imagine Emerald, if he will, he comes to Cincinnati and he and Jeff Ruby put their heads together to open a restaurant, brand new spot. And it's open, they do a soft opening and you hear the raves about how amazing it is. But all you know is, is it's beyond your budget. Can't do it. One day you get an invitation in the mail and the invitation says, there's a place at the table reserved for you. Just come. You call the restaurant. Is this real? Is this possible? Yes, for you. You show up, you walk in. It is amazing to the eyes and the smells are unbelievable. And you notice there's some people already there, regular patrons. Because you ask the maitre d' and said, oh, these are people that are regular. We invited them too. So you go in and you take your place and you're happy as a clam, just be there. But you notice across the restaurant, right before the food comes out, that a whole section of the restaurant stands up and says, ah, let's go somewhere else. And out the door they go. And you notice as they go, that's the regular patrons. That's the regular people. Those are the people that are a part of the family. They're gone. And you cricket, cricket in the room. Well, the owner comes out and he says, hey, all the food's coming out. The best of everything that we can prepare. It's all yours. You're going to eat with the servants. You're going to eat with all of us are going to eat together. Enjoy yourself. Make yourself at home. Meanwhile, those that have left got down the street. I don't know where they are. But suddenly one of them is smart enough to go, hey, what are we doing? All of the best has been prepared for us. And they're back there enjoying it. We want what they have. Let's go back. And they come back. Because they come to their senses. And they come in and enjoy the best bread and the best drink. And the two shall become one. This will be the conversion of Israel. Their eyes will be open. They're going to see Jesus and trust in him. And trust in him alone. He'll be the true bread for their hearts. The, heart, the part of their heart that longs for a true feeding of their soul. 
And he can be the true bread to your heart today.